Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Ladies and gentlemen, there are a thousand of you here, and so Neil isn't going to need an introduction. Um, He is the most brilliant British historian of his generation. I know what you're all thinking, but I'm much older than him. And so we're going to kick off. I'm going to talk to him for about half an hour or so, maybe a little bit longer, about his truly brilliant biography of uh, Henry Kissinger, the first volume of this two-part biography. How did it come into being, and what were the rules of engagement? As a biographer, I'm very interested in the rules of engagement uh, between you and uh, Dr. Kissinger. Well, I think this must have been rather different from your experience with Napoleon. Because <laughs> I don't imagine that you met at a drinks party uh, in London, uh, which is what happened in this case. It was in, I think, 2003. And I'd been invited uh, to a drinks party in London uh, by Conrad Black. I was then a lowly part-time hack who occasionally wrote for The Telegraph. And I think this is the only invitation I received that year. Uh, and, and so I went, and I was uh, amazed to be introduced uh, to Dr. Henry Kissinger. Now, the way that you get an obscure academic to like you is to say that you've read one of his books. And that's exactly what uh, Kissinger did. He, he said he'd read my book, The Pity of War, and I was, of course, puffed up with self-importance at this. And we began an earnest discussion about the origins of World War I. And then he disappeared. He just vanished. And reappeared on the other side of the room next to the supermodel Elle McPherson, <laughs> who had just arrived. And I thought this was supernatural, because I've never seen anybody move so fast at a, a drinks party. Anyway, to come to the point... Over a period of months, uh, we uh, got to know one another better and corresponded about the possibility of, of my writing uh, his biography. I know I wasn't the first person to be asked uh, to do this. Uh, you were asked to do it. <laughs> I was. I found this out later uh, because he'd heard that you were the best British historian could of our read, generation. Could you read my notes? Uh, my handwriting's terrible. Impossible it? to read your notes. <laughs> I, um, so I was aware that this was a rather a difficult assignment, 
and that there must be good reasons why you'd opted for Napoleon. <laughs> I said no. Uh, and and I, I thought, I'd agonised about it, but I thought on balance it was just too difficult, there would be far too many difficult documents, I mean vast amounts of documents, because of course few administrations have been more thoroughly documented than the Nixon administration. And then I had the nightmare prospect of a review, remember this is back in 2003, by Christopher Hitchens, uh, which I was dreading already. <laughs> so I... So I said no, and then I, I had a little introduction to the diplomacy of Henry Kissinger because I got a letter from him that said, how disappointing, I had just made up my mind that you were the very man uh, for the job, and moreover, I just found 145 boxes of my letters and diaries that I thought had been mislaid. You didn't. I think, fall for this, but I, of course, did. Because uh, <laughs> in addition to being a good historian, I'm, I'm the most naive historian of our generation. So I, I went and, within a short space of time, found myself looking through these documents. And as soon as I began to leaf through letters that he'd written to his parents in the 1940s, a diary of a trip to Vietnam in 1965, I was gripped. I hadn't felt that excited by archival material since I'd stepped into the Rothschild archive many years before. And so I came out feeling the way I'd felt then, I really have to do this. This is a, an astonishing story. It is not at all well understood in the existing literature. Uh, despite the difficulty ahead, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But I said from the outset, as I said when I agreed to write the history of the Rothschild Bank, you'll give me access to your private papers, but you won't have a say over what I write. You'll just have to accept that I will strive to write the history of your life as it, as it was, as, as accurately, as truthfully as I can, but you won't like it all. Uh, and as long as you're prepared to live with that, we can, we can go ahead. Uh, and I explain this in the preface to the book, because I think it's important that people understand this isn't an authorised biography in the sense that sometimes implied by that term. He didn't go through and delete all the bits he didn't like. On the contrary, it was, it was something that I authored on the basis of access to his, his private papers, but also access to, in the case of Volume 1, 49 other archives all over the world. Did he suggest any deletions that you said no to? We, we had an, a, an understanding that there would be one category of quotation that he would uh, have a right to object to. And those were quotations that related to his private family life. And uh, it turned out that the key issue, which um, I did understand, related to his divorce, to his first marriage and his, and his divorce. His first wife is still living. There were some letters that he writ wrote on that subject uh, from which I was I admit, tempted to quote, uh, but he said, please, don't quote those lines because they're just too hurtful. Mm. And I felt that was a reasonable, a reasonable thing to ask. So there were, I think, two or three quotations relating to that issue that I, I did take out of the final version, but that's all. Um, refugees are in the news a lot at the moment. Um, he, of course, was affected by his, uh, by his um, status as a, as a refugee and his... Uh, uh, emotions as a refugee. Talk to us a bit about what being a refugee mattered, uh, meant to uh, Kissinger. You have to imagine yourself, if you can, at age 15, 
having to leave your home and your friends uh, and start a new life altogether. You're ready to do it because life has become intolerable where you were born and raised. Uh, This was in the town of Furt in uh, South Germany, Franconia. Furt is a rather unpleasing industrial town next to Nuremberg. Nuremberg was one of the most Nazi uh, cities in all of Germany. It was where uh, Der Stürmer was published. And things had got progressively more and more unpleasant uh, for the Kissingers uh, from the moment Hitler came to power. For example, his father, who was a uh, deeply serious, devout Orthodox Jew, but also a, a, a teacher in the girls' high school in Furt, a man who was immersed in German culture, lost his job, uh, something which was a devastating blow to him. Uh, it was his mother who realized they had to get out. And so in 1938, uh, they were able to become uh, uh, refugees to the United States because of the, the system, the quota that then existed, which allowed about 20,000 Germans to come to the United States. Uh, this was way fewer than wanted to come by the summer of 1938. But they had a relative, a distant relative in the U.S. who vouched for them financially. So they were able to make the move via London uh, to New York and start from scratch. Kissinger knew hardly any English. He'd studied it a bit at school, but, but really hadn't had more than a few words. And he had to uh, work uh, during the day. The, the, the father had no way of earning. Uh, and so Kissinger ended up working in a shaving brush factory making shaving brushes out of uh, badger hair dipped in acid. Uh, And at night he studied uh, at the George Washington High School. This was a pretty tough time, as you can well imagine. They didn't arrive with much because Jews were not allowed to take much out of Germany, basically a crate of furniture and really a pittance in terms of money. Uh, So I think it's very important to understand that part of Kissinger's life, but I don't think that's the formative Time. I think the formative time comes later when he's called up uh, into the U.S. Army and sent back to Germany. And fights in the Battle of the Bulge. It finds himself very much at the sharp end of that phase of World War II. Uh, even before the Battle of the Bulge, he's on German soil. Uh, it's December 1944. You've just got to imagine, this is six years later. Uh, and he's writing back to his parents a, an extraordinary letter Uh, which begins somewhere in Germany. And he says, it's late, but I just had to write a letter so that it could begin somewhere in Germany. I am back. I'm back now where I want to be. Germany now knows war because he sees the devastation that uh, is there on this side of the Rhine. Uh, They understand what it is to be driven from their homes. And I am glad to be back here as an American soldier. Notice, the letter's written in English uh, because the family switched to English as soon as they got to to New York. This, by the way, was one of an amazing series of letters that I only got this year because these letters to his parents from the 1940s, he held back uh, throughout the period that I was researching this book, more or less 10 years, I think because they were just so personal and, and so revelatory. And I think part of Kissinger couldn't quite bring himself to relinquish such intimate letters uh, until, I guess, until he was sure that I would make good use of them. So I'd actually finished the book. I'd written the book uh, and then was handed this file of letters, uh, which was one of the most 
stressful moments of my cruise <laughs> historian because I didn't know how long I'd actually have them before he changed his mind. But they, they are amazing letters. And they go on to tell the story of a, of a young man who, who finds himself in an incredibly hot spot uh, during the, the great German offensive uh, that leads to the Battle of the Bulge, very exposed, under heavy shell fire. It was a dangerous situation. He would have been shot if he'd been captured, almost certainly. And, and he actually was brave during the battle as well, didn't he? He went out during the shelling and... Uh, yes, and well, he describes it in a, in a long letter uh, written, uh, or I think co-written with one of his fellow soldiers, another German refugee named Fritz Kramer, as an act of recklessness rather than bravery. But clearly, uh, this was a, a pretty dangerous situation to be in. Although he'd been taken out of... Uh, the regular infantry. He'd been a rifleman to begin with and moved into counterintelligence. Being in counterintelligence meant going after the hardened Nazis that the Americans feared would wage a resistance in occupied Germany even, even after the German surrender. Uh, so it was, uh, it was far from uh, a safe billet. Uh, and it was in this role that he had probably the most searing experience of his early life, and that was to witness the liberation of a concentration camp. Uh, again, this is one of those documents that made me want to write the book. It was a two-page account of what it was to witness the opening of a, of a modestly-sized concentration camp, the Arlem camp outside Hanover, and be face-to-face with victims uh, of the Holocaust. And it's written to a 16-year-old Polish boy, Folek Sama, whom he directly addresses under the heading... Uh, the ironic heading, The Eternal Jew. It's an incredibly moving document. Uh, and I quote it in full in the book because I don't think you can understand this man until you realise what on earth that was. Not only that, but just a few weeks later, he gets to Furt, his hometown, and discovers that everybody, all the members of the family who had stayed in Germany, at least a dozen, probably more, including his grandmother, were dead, and all the friends gone too. So... I don't think one can really one can really write a biography of, of Kissinger and not make something of that searing experience. Um, yeah, it's a very powerful moment in the book. But you don't go along with the uh, the sort of easy theory that a lot of historians have attributed to Kissinger that um, it was Weimar and the um, and the chaos of Germany that led him to be an orderist, in the words of one of the uh, reviewers. Yeah, that's the, you, you think it's a much more complicated uh, story than that? Well, I guess you had to put up with quite a bit of psychobabble yeah. uh, from writers who wanted to infer that he was in some way hostile to democracy, had a preference for authoritarian government. This is nonsense. It's very clear uh, that the opposite was true, that the experience of totalitarianism made him a committed believer uh, not only in, in American democracy, but also in the idea of, of freedom, about which he wrote with extraordinary emotional commitment in that uh, essay, The Eternal Jew, that I mentioned already, and later on. So I think this is all quite wrong. I, I was really struck by a letter that he wrote to his parents after the war was over, explaining why he was staying on, because he stayed longer in Germany than he needed to. Uh, he didn't return to the U.S. until 1947, to his parents' surprise. The parents were very implacably hostile uh, to the Germans. And he had to explain to them, A, that the war had changed him fundamentally. This is a remarkable letter for the young man to write. And B, that he had decided to stay in order to make sure, as he puts it, that the sacrifice made by his fallen comrades, the people no longer at the table, 
would not have been in vain. So there's an early commitment uh, to the project of creating a democratic Germany that will survive, that will actually work where Weimar had failed. Which brings us on to this whole concept of him being an idealist, because a lot of the reviewers have, um, have seen Kissinger as, a, uh, as an ultimate realist, a Machiavellian realist almost, um, and yet you have subtitled this book Idealist. Um, and this being Intelligence Squared, of course, we're all very well up on our Immanuel Kant. Um, I was really but, hoping you'd ask me about the categorical imperative tonight. So, uh, so talk a little about this, um, uh, this seeming dichotomy. Well, I'm sure there must be some people in the audience who, when they saw the subtitle, The Idealist, thought I was just trying to provoke Guardian readers. <laughs> I thought that. <laughs> and actually, it wasn't at all what I'd intended the subtitle to be. When I started out, I thought it would be something like American Machiavelli. You it, once told me that you thought he was a cross between Mephistopheles and Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> this was another early hypothesis. Uh, it's actually good that you mentioned Woody Allen because one of the delights of researching this was discovering a Woody Allen satire about Kissinger, uh, Harvey Wallinger. Uh, this was never screened on PBS, but you can now find it Online, and it has a priceless moment of Woody Allen as Harvey Wallinger trying to swear the oath of allegiance, not, well, not the oath of allegiance, but the uh, oath of office, and making a tremendous mess of it. It's extremely <laughs> amusing. Uh, but again, these hypotheses that historians start out with are not like economists' models, you know, that the economists then try to make work by teasing and mangling the data. I, I think we start with hunches as historians, and my hunches quickly disintegrated. Uh, for example, I, I realised that the sense of humour, which is clearly there, is much more Groucho Marx than Woody Allen. I realised he was actually a Dr Faustus uh, and Fritz Kramer was Mephistopheles. But most importantly, I realised that he was far from a Machiavellian or Bismarckian realist. What I did was this slightly old-fashioned thing. I, I read what he'd actually written. Uh, this, is, this is something rarely done by younger historians. I ploughed through uh, all his published writings and the unpublished writings and as much really as I could find. And as I read, I began to realise that most of his work, really from the 50s through into the mid-1960s, is a critique of realism. Um, there are three ways in which this works, and, and I'll try to avoid the, the cant getting too deep. There's a practical way in which he was an idealist. For Kissinger, the disaster of World War II was the result of policies that were supposedly tough, realist policies. He says in an interview in, I think, 1957, the appeasers thought of themselves as tough realists, which is actually a pretty shrewd observation. So I think even from his own experience, he had a scepticism about policies that say, well, we have to do a difficult thing, but uh, in the end, it's in the interests of the state. And that was essentially how Chamberlain dealt with the Czech problem. It's just one of those things that the Czechoslovakians will have to be partitioned. The second thing that's really important about Kissinger is going to Harvard and being made to read pretty much the complete works of Immanuel Kant. Now, the reason this happened was that a professor was trying to get rid of him. You have to imagine the scene. It's uh, William Yandel Elliot, who was this rather sort of uh, pompous, bombastic southern professor of government who fancied himself a political player, wanted to advise presidential candidates. In comes this rather chubby man uh, with a strong accent and says, 
I am your tutee. And Elliot looks up and, obviously trying to get rid of him, says, well, go and read Immanuel Kant, thinking he'll never see the student again. <laughs> he didn't reckon with Kissinger. He came back, having read all of Immanuel Kant, and proceeded to write an enormous senior thesis with the modest title, The Meaning of History. <laughs> There's a lesson there for all professors. Be careful what you wish for. So in, in reading his way through Kant, I mean, this senior thesis is pretty turgid and it's not, it's not a fun read, but once you read it closely, you realise what he's doing is saying that Kant is right about the idea of freedom as something meaningful, uh, that that's really something that, that trumps other philosophies of history. He sort of dispenses with Spengler and Toynbee, who are sort of rubbished in the, in the thesis. And he comes to a, a very important conclusion. This is my third point, and then enough idealism. Unlike most people in the immediate post-1945 period, Kissinger did not believe that money made the world go round. He was not an economic determinist. He rejected Marxism-Leninism, well, most people in the United States did, but he also rejected capitalist theories that said, oh, our economic system is better than theirs, and that's what the Cold War is about. Kissinger says in the senior thesis that totalitarianism is something we would reject even if it had an economically superior system, even if it turned out to be better economically, because the idea of freedom is so sacrosanct. So I think that's the idealism I'm, I'm referring to. And the proof really is that he clashed with the real realists, people like Hans Morgenthau, over a whole range of issues uh, of foreign policy in the 1960s, the Berlin crisis, Cuba, and ultimately Vietnam. So I think this title is not just a provocation. It's not just me being contrarian. I think it's actually the best way of sum summing up Kissinger, the first half of Kissinger's life, which is what this book covers. There's a whole second volume to write, uh, which we'll, I'm sure will not have the subtitle, The Idealist. Um, now, when he was at Harvard, he also wrote a book about uh, limited nuclear war, a um, subject that sounds... I mean, very, the very word limited, <laughs> words limited nuclear war sound absurd. Um, tell us how important that was, both for his career and also for the way that he was subsequently uh, viewed. Most people, I'm sure... And also, sure, if you can, do you think that there is such a thing as a limited nuclear war? Could there, there ever could be? There could be, there hasn't been. No. Um, but that's a good question to ask, as I'll, I'll try and show. So most people, I'm sure in this, in this sophisticated London audience, will have seen Dr. Strangelove. And uh, there was a kind of legend that, that Kissinger was partly the inspiration for Peter Sellers' character in that movie, the, the German-accented uh, theorist of nuclear uh, war. But, but that's not right. Um, it, it's actually a kind of amalgam of Hermann Kahn and, and Werner von Braun, not Kissinger. Because if you look at Dr. Strangelove, he's, a, he's clearly a former Nazi uh, and a rocket scientist. Kissinger is a refugee and an expert by the early 1950s in, well, your special subject, the defeat of Napoleon, which is what he writes his doctoral dissertation about, finds himself suddenly drawn into the world of nuclear strategy by happenstance, really. I think it was because Harvard wouldn't give him a tenured professorship. He didn't want to go to Chicago. And he got offered a job at the Council on Foreign Relations to act as rapporteur for a committee that was thinking about U.S. nuclear strategy. And he pretty quickly took over that role and turned, and turned it into his book. I mean, he turned the, the minutes, as it were, of the meetings into the raw material for a book that made him famous. Now, what this book argues uh, does, as you rightly say, at first blush sound crazy. 
Uh, it argues that there should be an option to wage a limited nuclear war because at this point in U.S. history, it's the Eisenhower era, you only have two options if the Russians take aggressive action. Give in, blow the world up. That's the choice. And Eisenhower had set this rather deliberately up as a binary uh, uh, set of alternatives uh, because he felt that anything else would let the military run riot as they somewhat had under Truman. Kissinger's point was, this is nuts. We'll never, ever stand up to the Russians if our only sanction is Armageddon. We'll just end up giving in to them because nothing will be worth the threat of massive retaliation. So in that sense, the book starts to to become a little less crazy. Uh, It argues that there ought to be an option if the Russians, for example, use massive conventional forces in Europe to use what became known as battlefield nuclear weapons uh, to check their advance. Otherwise, you lose all of Europe because you just don't have the conventional forces to resist the Red Army. Two interesting points. One, Kissinger later changed his mind about this. Not long after, actually, said... Come to think of it, maybe that would be pretty hard to pull off a limited nuclear war that wouldn't escalate. But secondly, and crucially, even although he rode back, the theory became central to NATO strategy for the rest of the Cold War. I mean, there were battlefield nuclear weapons. They became a crucial part of both superpowers' arsenals. And you don't build weapons like that if you don't have a theory of limited nuclear war. So although it never happened... Uh, It could have happened, and it was certainly a strategic option for the rest of the Cold War. How did he get on with the Kennedy administration? Kissinger had a very interesting relationship with the Kennedy family. He became involved in politics as an advisor to a Kennedy opponent, a Republican, playboy, billionaire, who wasn't terribly intellectually profound. Uh, Nobody like that could ever run for the Republican nomination. (laughs) Today, of course. <laughs> oh, wait. I, Nelson Rockefeller was no, no Donald Trump, though, and, and, and I don't mean to imply that he was. He was nevertheless somebody who preferred to buy an author than to read a book. And so rather than trouble himself with reading nuclear weapons and foreign policy, he hired Kissinger to be a foreign policy advisor. And Kissinger and he clicked. I think Kissinger loved the idea of this aristocratic figure with his massive art collection and multiple lovely houses. Uh, And also, Nelson Rockefeller admired Kissinger's intellect and saw that he, in fact, was a pretty shrewd strategic thinker. But Rockefeller kept losing. I mean, he just lost every time. Three out of three bids for the Republican nomination end in failure. And each time he loses, Kissinger is kind of gunned for hire as a strategic thinker. John F. Kennedy liked hiring Harvard professors. In fact, the administration in 6061 is largely staffed with people that he's rounded up in Harvard Yard. Uh, and Kissinger is approached by Kennedy uh, before he's even won the election and uh, invited to lunch, and Kennedy lays on the charm. Kissinger ends up in the Kennedy administration, admittedly as a pretty small player, trying to fathom this new and unfamiliar world of of White House politics. And boy, is it an unfamiliar world. Apart from anything else, you've got the president bonking everything that moves (laughs) upstairs uh, while people are trying to manage the most dangerous moments of the Cold War downstairs. I mean, this is kind of unfamiliar for a a guy from small-town Germany uh, who's, who's, you know, he's seen some stuff in the war, but this this is a whole different... I nearly called it a ball game. (laughs) 
which brings us on to um, to Vietnam um, and your discovery of the 1965 uh, diary. And uh, tell tell us a bit about um, the way in which Kissinger's mind evolves with regard to the uh, increasing American involvement in Vietnam. Well, you all know, Andrew, the feeling of excitement when you get a golden document, something that is absolutely quotable and quotable and, and really can make a book. When I found the 1965 diary of a trip to Vietnam, I remember feeling enormous excitement. And it got only more exciting as I read. Unlike many professors who comment uh, on foreign policy matters, Kissinger wanted to get out of his Harvard study and go and see what the hell was going on. This is coming already by 65, the biggest issue facing the United States. Uh, And Kissinger, who, remember, had been in the military, uh, didn't shirk from going to the front line. Uh, He went to Saigon as an advisor to the U.S. ambassador in South Vietnam, but pretty quickly got out of the city and started to see for himself what was happening. And to me, the impressive thing is how quickly, already in 1965, he realizes the whole thing is a complete disaster. And it's a disaster for two reasons. One, there's this horrific, ungainly American bureaucracy running amok with five different agencies all engaged in what would have been uh, a few decades later PowerPoint presentations about how well they're doing. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there are, is a, an incredibly corrupt government in Saigon, which is clearly incapable of existing on its own. He comes back and essentially tells his colleagues at Harvard, we have to find a diplomatic way out of this. And he begins working intensively on that problem. It really takes over. Uh, he ends up in secret negotiations, trying to start conversations with the North Vietnamese in Paris in 1967, uh, works extremely hard to try and get a breakthrough, thinks he's getting close, uh, and learns a really valuable lesson about diplomacy because he's really made a fool of by the North Vietnamese representative in Paris. The the crucial point to understand about Vietnam in the late 1960s, and this is often forgotten, is that the North Vietnamese had no intention of reaching a diplomatic settlement with the United States. They thought they were going to win. And so they play footsie with Johnson and later on uh, with Nixon, while all the time planning military victory. This is very true in 67. They're going through this whole charade of, well, maybe we'll take the call, maybe we'll have the meeting, while at the same time planning the Tet Offensive, which they launched the next year. So this is a pretty interesting lesson for uh, Kissinger in the dark art of diplomacy. And you do also point out that there was another reason why he wanted to go to Paris in 1967 and 68. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because... It's a reminder. I learned something about being a historian doing this. Uh, It's a reminder that you can't find everything in the documents. There there are things that you can only know if they're vouchsafed to you. I thought I had written a a pretty good chapter on this 1967 episode. And indeed, I thought it was one of the best in the book. And then I went and had dinner at the Kissingers, having, I thought, finished the book. This is before I got the all the extra documents. And as I was preparing to sit down, uh, Nancy Kissinger said, and she was clearly not going to stay for dinner, but she wanted to say something. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Neil, why do you think Henry was really spending so much time in Paris in 1967? <laughs> and this is sort of a terrible moment for a story because you realise that you've completely missed something. And I had completely missed something because it wasn't there in the written record at all. He was there because she was there. Uh, she had been uh, working on her a doctoral dissertation uh, on interwar France at the Sorbonne. So it turned out that one reason Kissinger didn't really mind being led down the garden path by the North Vietnamese was he was quite happy to spend the whole summer in Paris seeing Nancy Kissinger as she became, Nancy McGuinness as she was then, with whom he'd been having a relationship since 1964, since the Republican National Convention in San Francisco, uh, where they had met. That relationship remained secret, was not reported on in the press until the early 1970s. And I think the main reason for keeping it so private was that he'd only got divorced shortly before 1964. He had two very young children, and he just didn't want it out there. So this was a salutary reminder that one can find as much as possible from serious and scrupulous archival research, but there are things you can only find out if people actually tell you. Uh, and this is something you didn't have with Napoleon. <laughs> um, well, that brings us on to 1968 and the whole question of Richard Nixon. Uh, what Nixon saw in him, why Nixon turned to him, what he thought of Nixon at the beginning is fascinating. Your, the, your description of, of the relationship between these two men, which obviously is going to be a key uh, aspect of Volume 2, the kernel of it is very much there in Volume 1. So would you like to talk a bit about that? Well, I was sure I was going to be able to find the origin of their relationship and, and reveal that it began much earlier than anyone had realised. And I was especially sure when I discovered that the Professor Elliot I mentioned earlier had been a Nixon advisor and, in fact, had got close to Richard Nixon in the 1950s when, when Nixon was a pretty unknown congressman. So I thought, ah, there has to be a moment when these two men met and I'm going to show that the relationship and therefore had deep roots. No. In fact, despite the Elliot connection... They didn't meet until the end of 1967. And this was partly because Kissinger avoided Nixon. What I hadn't fully appreciated until I did the book was that Kissinger, in common with most people uh, at Harvard, or for that matter in New York, loathed Nixon. Or as Arthur Schlesinger put it, loathed Nixon. <laughs> and so when Nixon reached out to Kissinger in 1960, after Rockefeller had lost the nomination... Kissinger invented a trip to Japan to avoid taking the meeting. Now, 
we all try to avoid people we don't want to meet, but to go to Japan <laughs> to avoid someone suggests you really, really, really do not want to meet them. And, and that meant that there was this curious non-relationship at the heart of Volume 1, a non-relationship that only finally became a relationship at a cocktail party in New York in late 1967, a very awkward meeting between the two. Kissinger had been rude about Nixon publicly. He'd said he was unfit to be president. And there they were, one of those somewhat awkward occasions. And lo and behold, it's the socially inept Nixon who breaks the ice. Uh, how does he do it? I already told you this. By telling the professor that he'd read one of his books. <laughs> and, and indeed he had, because I, I was able to show in my research that Nixon had read Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. He'd probably read much else that Kissinger wrote. Uh, and so the odd thing about the relationship is that it turned out not to be personal. It turned out to be purely intellectual. And Nixon read Kissinger and admired him. And despite all the rebuffs, uh, he finally ends up offering this man a job. There are all kinds of theories about why that came about, incidentally. Some of them of enormously complex and conspiratorial detail. I think, fundamentally, it was an intellectual affinity that Nixon was the first to spot. And in the second volume, would you like to give us a little preliminary view about... Uh, I mean, obviously, the second volume's likely to be much more controversial than the first. You've got Chile and Cambodia and all the other great uh, issues. Uh, what, um, how far are you through the research, the writing, and, and how are your thoughts coalescing? Well, I'm probably about 60%, maybe 65% of the way through getting the stuff. Um, more like 10% through processing it. And I've written an introduction which I'll almost certainly discard, but which is there just to help me organise my thoughts. And, and, and that's about as much as I can say, because I, I really haven't made up my mind. I've no idea what the subtitle will be. I guess it won't be controversial if I call it Dr. Evil. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that the, the challenge, and it's hard to com communicate to people who haven't been through this process of, of immersing yourself in in thousands, tens of thousands of pages of material, is that you, you make up your mind about something at quite a late stage in the process. Once you've gathered all the material and once you've read it all through, in, in my case, I read it all in chronological order, and then I sort of build chapters sorry, how, rather laboriously. You, you read it all in chronological order? Yeah. How, how, sorry, how on earth do you do that? Well, it's a slightly, um, it's slightly nerdy. Can I be nerdy for a second? Please. Um, I, I set out to try and do this in a different way from the way I'd done previous books by taking advantage of technology. So although there's tens of thousands of pages of stuff, uh, it's, in a, it's in a database. Uh, I can see the facsimile of every document. Uh, my wonderful research assistant, Jason, was going around all these archives while I was teaching and just taking pictures of page after page after page. Uh, and we've also digitized them so that there's uh, a, a searchable text uh, also there in the database. And my rather old-fashioned way of working is when I finally conclude there is no more stuff or we're into diminishing returns and any more stuff is going to be of marginal use, I just sit down and I plod through it. And I try and relive the life day by day and sometimes hour by hour on the basis of what I've got. And I have to say, I do find it at one, time, at one and the same time incredibly tedious and incredibly exciting because there are moments of tedium, there are dull letters, there are letters that get nowhere, there are awful articles that you wish you didn't have to plough through. But as you read through and relive the life with the archives all coming together, with all the different pieces of the jigsaw suddenly arranged in line, 
That is the moment when you see what actually happened. Ranker's great phase, phrase, wie es eigentlich gewesen. So volume two is miles from that point of, of real understanding. Uh, and that's why if you want to ask me questions about post-December 1968, all I can offer you will be lame hypotheses. Uh, that's really all I've got at this point. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to throw it open now to um, you and to ask questions. Yes, um, I, I've read the book already. I very much enjoyed it. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, why do you think uh, uh, Henry Kissinger continues to be such a polarizing figure and such a controversial figure with the left? I think perhaps we've seen that with the New York Times book review Uh, row, which hasn't been reported here, but which is causing some excitement. I was rather hoping that you might review Paul Krugman's next book, but uh, <laughs> we can live in hope. He writes books. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I tried to, to touch on in the introduction was uh, this question. Why did he go from being super K uh, on every other magazine cover, Time, Newsweek, one of the most popular men in America, according to the polls, to being reviled uh, in the way that he was when Hitchens published the trial of, of Henry Kissinger. And I, I hazard a, a, a guess, maybe this is a lame hypothesis to start with. P part of the issue is that, that Kissinger's policy when he came into office was, uh, was attacked from both the left and the right. Uh, you know, he had his critics on the left, of course, the generation of 1968 uh, was ready to pin as much of the blame for Vietnam as possible on the people who, in effect, had been elected to clear up the mess. But there was also this critique from the right that became pretty strident uh, pretty quickly, saying détente was a sellout to the Soviets. And this produces a sort of escalation uh, of, uh, of conspiracy theories, with the right saying... Kissinger's a communist agent who was recruited by the KGB uh, in the 1940s, and the, and the left saying he, he's a war criminal. Uh, and I think it's partly to do with the nature of the strategy of the early 1970s, but it's also partly, I think, to do with his being Jewish. And there is some curious way in which he has become a lightning rod for a whole set of accusations that could be leveled against every secretary of state, right down to the present, And yet somehow they have to be leveled at Kissinger. And, you know, you ask yourself, where is the trial of Dean Rusk in the bookshops? <laughs> you will look in vain uh, for books that call John Foster Dulles a war criminal. And yet I, I really can't think of many things that Hitchens says about Kissinger in his book. Uh, for example, you know, support for authoritarian regimes, turning a blind eye to acts of, of, of bloodshed, of extreme violence in allied or aligned countries. These things were done by all administrations, right through the Cold War and beyond. So there's something that turned Kissinger into a lightning rod for, for a generation on both the left and the right. And one reason I wanted to take this book on is a little bit like the reason I was motivated to write the Rothschild book. There's this myth, which is really potent. It still exists the myth of the Rothschilds controlling the international financial system, the myth of Henry Kissinger as the arch-villain Dr. Evil. As a historian, I'm drawn to subjects that have that sort of penumbra of mystification uh, because I really think that the truth in the archives, the truth that you can establish as a scholar 
can do something to, to dispel these often really toxic and sometimes, frankly, anti-Semitic myths. Gentleman here. Uh, can he be given a, uh, a mic? And do I see other hands? Yes. Can, so, can somebody give that gentleman there a, a microphone as well for uh, afterwards? Dr. Kissinger's tenure as both National Security Advisor and Secretary of State coincided with a time when communism was very much an ascendant ideology in the world. At what point, when you were working on his biography, did you realise that he knew or saw that communism would collapse within his lifetime? Well, certainly not in volume one. And I, <laughs> and I wouldn't like to say when in, in volume two. The, the, this, this is a really fundamental point that, that you've raised. And it's, it's a very important point to convey, particularly to younger readers. The Cold War was serious. The Soviet Union was very dangerous. Its nuclear stockpile was growing by leaps and bounds in this period and ultimately overtook that of the United States. They were aggressively pursuing the expansion of communism in what was then known as the Third World. And so one of the challenges of, of Volume 2 will be to try to set the scene. It's 1969. The Soviets are winning the Cold War. The United States is in terrible trouble. Not only is it failing disastrously in Vietnam, but it is deeply divided at home. At the level of violence in American cities and on American campuses in the late 1960s and early 1970s is truly astonishing. We think we see this kind of thing in our time. Forget about it. Ferguson, Missouri, or the Occupy movement are like tiny, tiny incidents compared with the wave of national uh, violence, the upheaval of, of 1969 and following years. So I, I think it's really important to convey in the opening to this next volume the weakness of the American position and the seriousness with which the Soviets were pursuing their own ambitions. I don't think at that point there is even the remotest glimmer of hope that the Soviets are going to oblige us by collapsing. Uh, and it certainly wasn't clear that their economy was going to fail. Uh, it was the US economy that seemed to be failing. And let's not forget what happened in 1973. This was the age uh, of stagflation. So I think it's really crucial that we recapture the uncertainties and fears of that time, recapture the sense that lots of countries are on the brink of going communist, and if the US doesn't act, they will tip over into the communist uh, camp. I, I said earlier that Kissinger's idealism partly consisted of a visceral rejection of totalitarianism. And although he was prepared ultimately to deal with the Soviets as he was prepared to deal with the Chinese, who were the more extreme Marxists in many ways, the ultimate objective was A, to avoid Armageddon, avoid World War III, and B, to bring those two hostile powers into a strategic relationship to the United States that would improve the American position. And the great insight is a historical one. You have to make those two powers closer, that is the Russians and the Chinese, Soviet Union and the PRC, closer to the United States than they are to one another. Exploit their division. That's the big strategic idea of the Nixon administration. But it is a response to a massive geopolitical crisis that they've inherited from Johnson. Uh, that gentleman there. Um, Can I see more hands? Uh, what was um, Kissinger's view of your first book? Um, and also, in the second book, will you give him a... Uh, 
not a right of reply, but a, um, will you integrate some of his sort of re more reflect, reflective views now maybe into, into that book? Uh, that's a, a good question. I interviewed him at length early on uh, because I thought that was prudent. Um, I mean, he's now 92. I've come to realize he's going to live to be 110 and <laughs> read the uh, memorial address at my funeral. But at the time I embarked on this project, I couldn't count on that. So I interviewed him at, at great length uh, and indeed used those interviews uh, for a, a movie, a short documentary feature that he absolutely hated. Uh, and I think that proves my bona fides, if nothing else. There was a long period of non-speaking. I then, as I was writing uh, the book, which is far more reliant on, on the archival material than on any interviews, I thought it would be good to uh, run the first draft chapters past him. Not so that he could change them. Remember, I said that wasn't an option. Because I thought it would jog his memory. And indeed it did. There were, there were documents he was truly astonished to be reminded of. Uh, one example which really sticks in my mind. Amazing meetings that he had with people from the Eastern Bloc through the Pugwash conferences that brought scientists, academics together from the West and the Soviet Bloc, uh, which included a meeting with a guy from uh, Prague, a Czech named Snyderich, who I think may well have been the origin of the idea of the opening to China. Uh, Snyder explained to Kissinger why it was that the United States would be able to do a deal with Mao uh, because ultimately Mao hated the Soviets more than he hated America uh, and that this would be the key to the strategic uh, next move in the Cold War. And, and Kissinger's initial reaction is rubbish. This can't possibly be right. Uh, but that really amazed him. When he saw my quotation from that document, which he'd forgotten about completely, he was, he was truly stunned. And it prompted a lot of, of memories, and it helped me avoid a few pitfalls, like I would probably not have found out about, about his relationship with his second wife if I hadn't started to run things past him. And, and it would make sense to continue uh, to do that. But, but really in a kind of fact-finding spirit... Uh, in the hope of jogging memories and also making sure that one doesn't get things just horrendously wrong. Some documents are misleading. There was one document that I absolutely took at face value as a letter to his brother. And it's the document that describes the Battle of the Bulge experience. And I, I got a phone call. I was I think, walking through the streets of London and I get a phone call as he responds to this chapter saying that letter was a joint effort that I did with Fritz Kramer which we hope to publish. It's not just a simple letter uh, to my brother. It's an amalgam of our experiences together. So you just can't find that stuff out if you don't give the subject some, as you put it, right of reply. Uh, but ultimately, the discretion of the author is to decide, is this special pleading or is this just, is just this true? And you kind of have to use that judgment with great, great care. You've mentioned um, Fritz Kramer two or three times now, and also, of course, William Yandel Elliot. And there have been also other uh, sort of father figures, or at least people who are older than him, who have picked up uh, quite early on that he was a remarkable uh, and special person. How important was that? Was his ability to sort of get on with, uh, with more um, influential people? Well, Kramer was certainly not influential when he met him. I mean, he was a private in the U.S. Army, uh, but because Kramer had some uh, academic uh, kudos, he was older than Kissinger, had a doctorate, obviously knew Germany well, he'd got the job of lecturing about Germany to American troops preparing to go over 
uh, after D-Day, and it was a meeting in a training camp that brought them together. It's a, it's a fascinating relationship. Kramer was a kind of idiosyncratic guy. He, he posed as a Prussian conservative. He had a monocle, which he always wore. And Americans thought of him as this kind of caricature Juncker figure. Uh, I found, and I think this is a first, uh, that he, he was actually of Jewish origin, and he had reinvented himself. Uh, he, he wasn't conservative at all. He was a big believer in international law and had written his doctoral thesis on that subject. He was a brilliant man. He saw Kissinger's potential. Uh, th- this is one of these remarkable scenes. You have to imagine these two men in some godforsaken training camp. I mean, these training camps really were awful places. Wandering around talking about German history and philosophy. And it's Kramer who says to Kissinger, you're aiming far too low. After the war, you've got to apply to the top universities. Forget City College in New York. You need to aim higher because you've got this genius. It's, it's Kramer who says that he has a kind of musical attunement to history, which is a very, I think, insightful comment. Uh, and so Kissinger, after the war's over, eventually gets around to applying to all the top universities, and they all reject him except for Harvard. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of luck in this story. It's just luck he meets Kramer. It's just luck that Kramer plucks him out of counter, into counterintelligence. He might very well have died at the Battle of the Bulge if he'd still been a rifleman at that point. And so the luck goes on. Princeton, Yale, they turned him down because his application was late. And Harvard bent the rules and took a chance. I do think that when one writes this kind of history... The history that's based on primary sources and focuses on an individual life, one becomes far more alive to the contingencies of a life, to the extraordinary importance of chance. Each of those mentors, Eliot was the next one, and then after that, Rockefeller, they really shaped him. They were the ones who encouraged him to go in the directions that he took. I think it was Eliot who encouraged him to think, you can be more than an academic, you could be a policy advisor. That thought wouldn't have occurred to him if he'd studied with a more academically-minded, narrowly uh, academic professor. That gentleman uh, there. It's it's clear that, uh, obviously, his his Jewishness uh, influenced the way he developed uh, early on, uh, going out from Germany and uh, coming back, uh, writing the thing about the eternal Jew. Uh, How did he dialogue with his own Jewishness in those years that you were covering the first book? This is an extremely difficult question because Kissinger lost his religious faith at some point during World War II. He never says why exactly. His brother, incidentally, who served in the Pacific Theater had the same experience. And they had to break it to their father, who was devoutly orthodox and and belonged to one of the smaller synagogues uh, in Furt, that they, they didn't believe anymore. Uh, and this is one of those extraordinarily uh, revelatory letters that I mentioned earlier when he writes to them, you know, you think everything is black and white. I see only shades between. So this was a great rupture uh, in the family's history. Uh, and it, it led to a great complexity because it, it, it has lots of implications if you, if, you, if you lose your faith, as you hardly need me to tell you. And one of them is that you may opt to marry out of the faith, uh, it, it then affects how you educate your children. To, to Kissinger's father, this was a dreadful prospect, that after all, uh, his sons were going to break from Judaism and then his grandchildren would not be raised as Jews. 
Uh, I think this is one reason that Kissinger, after trying and trying and trying to persuade them that he wasn't going to marry the girl next door, ended up marrying the girl next door. Because whereas his younger brother Walter had essentially walked out of the family home two or three days after coming back from the war uh, and ended up marrying uh, a, a, a Gentile, Kissinger really felt that he could not hurt his parents uh, in quite that way. So, so there is this fascinating uh, and, and ongoing conversation within the family about the relationship then between uh, Henry Kissinger and his Jewish roots. He continues to think of himself as a Jew. Uh, and that is one reason, I think, that he steers clear of writing about uh, Middle Eastern questions during the period covered by Volume 1. There's hardly anything on the Middle East, and Israel is scarcely mentioned. Important footnote, maybe more than a footnote. As somebody from an Orthodox background, Kissinger was brought up and educated by rabbis who were very anti-Zionist, who regarded the project of a Jewish state in Palestine, a secular Jewish state, as it were, as a blasphemous undertaking. Uh, And I think that's important to know and helps explain, I think, this long evasion, really, of the Middle Eastern problem. Uh, he, He goes there. I found this out only because there were photographs. He wrote nothing about it that I've been able to find. And that's unusual because mostly when he went on foreign trips in the 50s and 60s, he would write a lot about it. Uh, So this is an interesting lacuna in the story. Uh, Nixon, who had all kinds of anti-Semitic prejudices, thought he should keep Kissinger out of Middle Eastern issues, uh, thinking he would be too pro-Israel. He little, little knew that that was not Kissinger's family bias. Ultimately, he ended up Uh, being very much involved in these issues. And I think it'll be a hugely important part of volume two. But the striking thing about this volume is that this issue recedes. And you mentioned Walter, the brother. I mean, he doesn't have a German accent, does he? He doesn't have that gravelly voice at all. (coughs) Well, there is a a story about this. There, there, I should say, are quite a lot of jokes in this book. And I'm I'm maybe not making this clear. We we talked earlier about... Tell the one, sorry, okay, I'm going to butt in now. Uh, (laughs) Tell the one about the the reason there's not going to be any victory in the war between the sexes. There won't be victory in the the battle of the sexes because there's too much fraternisation with the enemy. It's a... I mean, that's a good comedy that's line, right? Guess. I mean, That's the Woody and, Allen line. And, 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 <laughs> but I think it's more groucher than Woody Allen. Because yeah, okay. there's a, here's an example of how, of how... I'll come back to the accent in a minute. The, the humour is very de- derived from a kind of American Jewish, New York Jewish humour that the Marx Brothers were part of, but there were many other exponents of it. He heard these on radio when he first arrived in the United States. And one of the typical tropes of this style of humour is self-deprecation through exaggeration. Uh, you know, after he's, uh, after he's made Secretary of State, somebody in the press asks what, how they should address him, and it's fine, he says, if you call me Excellency. And this is just a kind of Groucho Marx-type line. One of the most notorious things Henry Kissinger ever said was, along the lines of, the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional takes longer. Now, the conspiracy theorists absolutely love this line, and it is quoted and quoted and quoted as proof that he is Dr. Evil. It's a joke. It's obviously a joke. 
when you see it in the context of the, of the meeting, which as I recall was with some Turkish diplomats, it's, it's, it's clearly intended as an ice-breaking uh, one-liner. And Kissinger's tragedy in some measure is that those Groucho Marx-type lines would come back to haunt him because the 1968 generation really didn't like the Marx brothers. In fact, they weren't that humorous at all. <laughs> so this is a kind of interesting aspect of the generational conflict. Things, things that were funny if you'd been in World War II were not at all funny if you were protesting against the bombing of Cambodia. That, that I think, is something that I'll try and bring out in Volume 2, the accent. It is said that Henry Kissinger has a strong accent and his younger brother, Walter, doesn't, even although they both arrived at the same time in the United States and there was only a couple of years' age difference. The joke is actually a Walter line. He says, the reason I uh, don't have an accent is that I listen to people. (laughs) (laughs) They're a wise-cracking bunch. I've met Walter Kissinger. He does have an accent. It's not as strong. He was younger when he came, but you would never mistake him for a native-born American. So this is another of these gags that has taken on a life of its own. And I, I think the humor is an important part of, of the story. It's something that, that I think enlivens the book. It's a great relief to an author to have a subject who makes jokes. Uh, I once tried to write a book in which the central characters had no sense of humor at all. And though they wrote many letters, they were joke-free. I gave it up. I couldn't stay awake. So true. My first book, um, it was about a man who never made a joke in his life. But one joke, which was so unfunny, I'm not going to... uh, (laughs) uh, But luckily, Napoleon was was a wisecracking joker, which was was good news. They could both have done stand-up, Kissinger and Napoleon. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, before I ask the lady there to uh, ask the last question, I'd just like to um, shock you all by saying that Neil's book is for sale. Uh, How vulgar. A- a- astonishing, but that's How just vulgar. one of those things. In, in, um, in and it'll be too. for sale outside uh, in, the, in the hall, uh, and, uh, and please form a uh, orderly queue when you leave. Madam. You talked about the importance of human agency, and you referred to biographies of men and women. To which women were you referring? (laughs) It's a terribly easy question to end with, isn't it? Because, of course, we're we're now just in the position to read Charles Moore's second volume of Margaret Thatcher's uh, biography, and and, and this is a a, a terrific work. Mm -hmm. Our first volume was superb. I'm sure the second will be too. The review certainly suggests that. Uh, and here's another perfect illustration of the point that, that, uh, that individuals can shape history. Uh, I am one of those uh, who think that Margaret Thatcher saved this country, uh, came to power when it was on its knees, and more or less single-handedly, uh, with many of her cabinet dragging their feet, uh, turned it around. So I wish there were more Margaret Thatchers, I must say. Uh, but, but, you know, that, that's a perfectly good illustration of, of the point. Uh, she was as decisive in, in Britain's post-war history as, as Churchill was in its mid-20th century history. Ladies and gentlemen, on that absolutely factually correct... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can I give you Neil Ferguson? Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.